Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, what the post gets wrong. And Richard, your most recent column at Defining Ideas was dedicated to the new Steven Spielberg film, The Post, which we learned earlier this week is a Best Picture nominee at this year's Oscars. And this is a film that deals with the decisions made at The Washington Post and The New York Times around the release of the Pentagon Papers in the early 1970s. Now, we're talking there about a very significant cultural event, but one that's now approaching 50 years old. So why don't we just start by reminding our listeners, especially those who may be too young to remember it, exactly what the Pentagon Papers were and why they were so inflammatory at the time. Well, the Pentagon Papers were essentially a huge compilation of materials that had been put together inside the Defense Department at the direction of the then Secretary of Defense, Robert McNamara. They ran 47 volumes worth of rather dense prose typed in 1960 machines. And what they did is they purported to cover a history of all the events from the time that Truman was president uh, to the time that Johnson was president, a period which roughly ran between 1945 and 1968. It is important to note uh, that the papers had nothing to do with the events after uh, Johnson left office and Richard Nixon took over, and they were published in uh, June of 1971, uh, which was essentially long after everybody else was gone. And the Post, essentially, and the Times had received these papers from a man named Daniel Ellsberg. Although I didn't say it in the column, I've been told that Ellsberg first went to Senator Fulbright on the Democratic side, who ferried him over to the New York Times. He released the papers to them. They sat on them from about the middle of March to the middle of June, deciding whether and what to do with them. Then they published a spectacular story named essentially from the beginning of time, i.e. from the Truman period forward. Uh, the United States had lied to its public about the extent of the body of the um, involvement in Vietnam. The Post published a couple of days later, and then there was this frenzy of legal activities. You had two decisions, one in the Washington District Courts, one in the New York District Courts, one in New York saying we can stop the publication, the other in Washington saying not. They then go up instantly on appeal and they make it to the Supreme Court so that the entire incident from soup to nuts in terms of the public eye runs from June 13th to June 30th. And the Supreme Court essentially churned out a series of fairly thoughtful, long, complicated opinions on a couple of days notice. Uh, once they were released, the Pentagon Papers became something of a celebrity. They became a bestseller. I think of it as the largest book that you put on your coffee stand. It's there to support the flower vase. Nobody, I think, actually reads it. And if, in fact, you were to try to find anything in those particular papers, that was a revelation. One has to remember uh, that the amount of protest, confusion, and disorganization up before 1971 was legion. Um, Lyndon Johnson was forced out of office essentially in April, late March of 1968 because of massive public dissatisfaction. Even before when he commanded uneasy majorities, the protest movements were everywhere in the street. And so I think it could be fair to be said that if you actually look at these things and try to figure out what it is that they added over what it was that was known at the time, the answer is precious little. And indeed, if you go back and you look at the introduction to the papers, they 
say exactly that with respect to the Truman and the Eisenhower years, saying we basically compiled what went on. And even for later people, periods, the two things are really important. One is the Pentagon Papers actually relied on a lot of public documents, um, including books by people like Bernard Fall describing what had happened. And it also contained no contemporary interviews with anybody in the administration. So you didn't have the tell-all type situation. This means, in effect, that what you were releasing essentially turned out to be largely stale information of common currency. And when I start looking at these things, I think that actually shapes the way you should think of the legal analysis. Well, speaking of the legal analysis, so this case ends up before the Supreme Court watching the film The Post. How much insight does it provide into the actual underlying legal questions? Uh, this is not a book or a movie about the uh, decision. At the end of the thing, what they do is they show you a couple of minutes of Supreme Court arguments, probably no more than 30 seconds. Then they have Meg Greenfield, who went on to be a very distinguished columnist for Newsweek, um, reporting the result in the Washington Post newsroom that they won six to see and everybody clinking glasses. Uh, earlier on, everybody said this is really a big case for two reasons. One, it involves the First Amendment. And the second, at the time, the Post was trying to go public. And the thought was that if, in fact, they were found subject to criminal sanction, it could not only derail the particular publications, but could also derail the effort for them to finance themselves. And so the movie stresses the dynamics and the drama associated with the run-up. And then in the end, what they do is they give you a few little um, post-ups, you know, on the screen, writing as to what happened to this person and that person. And the thing that I found was actually quite regrettable about the movie is they end with the Watergate break-in, which took place on June of 1972, which was essentially a year later, and made it appear essentially that the same mental state of Richard Nixon in the Pentagon paper cases drove Watergate. And this is a real scandal. Nixon had nothing whatsoever to gain out of keeping these papers secret in terms of what they said. They said nothing about him. His fear was actually that if you released the papers, the Chinese with whom he was trying to negotiate a rapprochement um, would take the position that the United States was not to be trusted. And so therefore, he had a collateral motive in that particular regard. It's not at all clear that it was strong enough to do this thing. And in any event, uh, when he lost this particular situation, he, of course, complied with the thing and the issue was more or less over. Uh, so as far as I'm concerned, they don't talk much about the legal issues in this case. And um, uh, that's what I decided to focus on when I wrote my column. So just to start off with the basics there, just give us the sort of top-line understanding of how the court ruled in this case and how you regard that decision. Well, the way in which the court approached the case was as follows. Uh, there is a general proposition of the First Amendment uh, which says that all forms of prior restraint of information shall not be allowed. And you could go back and you can quote Blackstone who said that that's the chief element of First Amendment protection. At that particular time, it was understood that even though you could not block the publication, you could sue somebody for libel. And although it wasn't stated, clearly you could sue them for breach of confidential relationships if the information that you released was something that you were bound by contract to do it. But there was no ex-ante relief. Uh, by 1964, the world changes another way. There's the great case of New York Times against Sullivan, and this was a defamation case. And what they did is they said that the First Amendment not only deals with questions of prior restraint, 
But what it also deals with is actions for defamation, dealing with public officials and later public figures. And the bottom line was you could only sue under those circumstances if the newspaper made a statement that was of and concerning a particular person and it was done with actual malice, which was defined as knowledge that certain facts were false or reckless disregard with respect to their truth. So essentially what the Supreme Court did is extended the protection of the First Amendment beyond pre-publication stuff to post-publication stuff. And it was a fairly new decision in 1971 and was being extensively litigated at that particular time. And so I think it's fair to say that if you take the period from 1964 to about 1985 or so, uh, First Amendment law and defamation was one of the major topics that they talked about. Uh, so that's the way in which they start to do this, and they argue that we don't see anything in this particular case which overrides the presumption against uh, uh, prior restraints. I take a very different view on this particular case. To me, the key factors that one has to estimate are two. One is the question about the speed at which this case is done, and more importantly, the question of whether or not the doctrine of prior restraint should apply to stolen information, uh, which the newspapers knew was stolen at the time that they received it. On the first of these questions, the basic position that was taken by Judge Blackman in dissent and by Justice Holland, two thoughtful guys in this case, was why all the hurry? Uh, the New York Times essentially had this stuff for three months. If we want to take a little bit of time to examine it and think what's going on, uh, there's surely no pressing necessity at the moment. There's no reason to think that June 15th was any different from July 15th. And so they wanted to slow this thing down so they could have a more deliberative process. And I think that's a perfectly fair and sensible way of looking at the particular issue. But the more important question is, does the doctrine of prior restraint apply to the situation where you're dealing with stolen information? And I think the answer is no. The doctrine is designed to protect people who want to make statements about what the government has done from sources that they own. And I think it's absolutely vital, for example, to go back to the movie, if Daniel Ellsberg, once he has very strong information that Robert McNamara is lying through his teeth when he says the war is going as planned, he can get up there and say, I've been on the front. I've watched what's happened. And what the Secretary of Defense has said is just pure bunk. We are getting ourselves beaten to smithereens. And then you could have a perfectly responsible public debate as to whether that means we should pull out or we should essentially decide to fight more aggressively in the war bombing, for example, people in the north along the trail to the south. That seems to me to be sensible. But if you were to do this in a private context, what the New York Times is doing is dealing with stolen goods. Normally, when somebody takes stolen goods, what you said is they're not entitled to keep them and that you must give those goods back to the person who owned them, particularly if you got them from a third party who was also a thief. And so what happens is the so-called doctrine of the bad faith purchaser essentially means that they couldn't keep goods. Now, with information, it's kind of silly to sort of demand the return of particular documents. You could photocopy them all, return the original documents, and publish the complicate. So since information can be divided in this particular fashion, what you have to do in the context of trade secrets, of which this is kind of one, is what you have to do essentially is to say not only can you have to return the documents, but we can enjoin you from publishing any replica of them. So we go back to the status quo ante. I think that is the correct analysis. And then that leaves you in the very unhappy position, one thinks, which is, ah, if they can't publish the information, are they going to be able to perpetuate uh, the concealment of stuff that's going on? And in order to deal with that, I think you have to start looking at 
other legal information, and that would be the Freedom of Information Act. Richard, let's move from the legal part of this to the sort of underlying principle, and I want to play it forward sort of to the present day. There, there is a tendency in many quarters to reflexively celebrate people, you might call them whistleblowers, who bring government secrets out into the open, sometimes regardless of the contents of those secrets. In, in recent years, one, of course, thinks about figures like uh, Edward Snowden or Chelsea Manning, both of whom have supporters, including a lot of libertarians who would argue that the behaviors that they engaged in were acts of patriotism. Is, it, is that how you see it? Oh, no. I, I take quite the opposite situation. Well, let me put it back in the context that I started with, making FOIA requests. And so suppose you went under the Freedom of Information Act and asked that the Pentagon Papers be declassified uh, because they're not top secret. My view is you have a very strong chance of winning that case. I've read those things and they're a classic snore. Uh, but as Justice Brennan said in his case, in, in his opinion, in the Pentagon Papers cases, you start talking about operatives overseas movements of troops and so forth like this, this is information which can put current American people overseas and in this country in great jeopardy. And it seems to me that the government has a perfectly legitimate interest in demanding that this stuff be quiet. And I think, in effect, that if anybody inside the government releases that information, they should be subject to very severe criminal punishment. And since the person who receives it knows that it's stolen, as on the analogy to the private law, I think anybody who publishes that information, knowing that it's classified, should be subject to very serious situations. And the danger of the legacy of the New York Times on this particular point is that one seems to say, well, maybe you could publish the guy who released it, but the third hand who gets it from him, i.e. the newspaper, is going to be free of sanction. I regard that as actually crazy. And that to give you an analysis, suppose somebody had a trade secret about the way in which a company had developed a secret process at great amount. And what they do is they release it to somebody else. And that part now wants to publish it in order to embarrass the company. It seems to me that you should be able to enjoin that, and the doctrine of prior restraint has nothing whatsoever to do with the case, because otherwise what happens is the publication of a trade secret results in the destruction of property that's worth millions or billions of dollars. And the same thing happens with a different kind of loss when you are dealing with these releases. So I think the sort of the hardline libertarian principle that you can say whatever you want is wrong because it doesn't take into account serious questions of confidentiality. It also ignores the very corrosive effects of defamation. It also essentially allows people to engage in various kinds of fraud. The way to understand speech is that freedom of speech, like freedom of action, is hemmed in by all sorts of limitations. It's a presumption and it's not an absolute. And dealing with stolen papers of any sort, kind of description is something in effect that takes you out of the presumption and puts you into the land of serious trouble. And we certainly recognize that with trade secrets because, for example, we have legislation about the foreign theft of American trade secrets, which makes all of that kind of stuff criminal to anybody whom we could catch within our jurisdiction. So uh, this is a classic illustration where the absolutism of a certain kind of libertarianism, I think, really uh, brings discredit to the intellectual coherence of the movement. You actually – you talk about this in your Defining Ideas piece as, as something that you call First Amendment exceptionalism, basically the, the absolutist interpretation of the First Amendment where the right to free speech trumps almost any other considerations. So on this point, a lot of our listeners might hear that and think, well, the 
text says Congress shall make no law. That's, that sounds pretty absolute. So as a legal matter, where and how do the exceptions come in? Well, I mean, if you really were to take that position, then you could never take private property without just compensation and so forth. And, and the Constitution is a very different kind of doctrine. What everybody knows is that the way in which this thing was drafted is that the provisions that you find in the Bill of Rights are essentially presumptions. What it means is Congress shall make no law restricting the freedom of speech. And then you have to figure out what it is they mean by freedom. And freedom essentially means that you're allowed to speak only to the extent that you're conformable to the standard rules of social discourse. And so you are free to speak what you mean, but you are not free essentially under these circumstances to lie about other people and create defamation or to commit fraud or mayhem. And the thought that somehow or other the Congress does is to take all sorts of conduct, which is today universally regarded as improper, including the use of fraud as a tool, which every libertarian will condemn, is just to misread the Constitution. So if you go back to the history, the whole question of implication under the so-called police power is a problem that started in the early 1820s when it was first mentioned and continues to resolve us today. And what one says under this is, what are the grounds on which you can justifiably restrict the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion? The freedom of religion may mean that you can have certain kinds of worship, but it doesn't mean you can have sacrificial situations of somebody else's children in order to serve a higher deity. So the whole constitution is essentially a balancing and weighing of interest. Now the question is, is this formulas? Formless. And the answer to that question is if you do it badly, it's formless. And most of the modernists essentially, I think, go very far astray when they assume that there's no theory that guides what these particular exceptions should be. And so that everybody can pretty do whatever they want. And so therefore, all the provisions of the Constitution are a dead letter. This was actually a point that was confronted in Lockton, New York, in a very thoughtful opinion by Rufus Peckham, generally reviled. He says, I've got to figure out how I could basically read the police power, dealing with health, safety, morals, and general welfare, the four categories, so it doesn't cover every last thing that happens. And so what he said under these particular circumstances, there are two kinds of legislation that are out from underneath the uh, police power. One of them is a kind of paternalism with respect to adults who have full capacity. You can't treat them like infants. And the other is what he called labor laws. And what we would say is you cannot use the power of the police to suppress lawful competition in economic markets. And the only way you can figure out what these exceptions are and how they ought to work is to actually have a pretty coherent classical liberal view, uh, which essentially starts with presumptions in favor of limited government and private property, and then works out all of the exceptions. And you have have to do that also under the First Amendment, because there is not a single person on the face of the globe who, when put to it, would say, you know, barefaced lies should be constitutionally protected. Congress can't do anything about it. And some people will say, well, maybe Congress can't do anything about it, but common law actions can do it. The problem is, what's the source of federal common law? And you're going to be faced with exactly the same kind of problem. Uh, so the absolutism on the part of anybody is incorrect. And then the total permissive nature of the so-called living constitutionalism is wrong. And you have to steer that middle course. It's hard to do. 
But this particular case is exceptionally easy because there is no one and thinks as a matter of private law that one private individual can take confidential information from, from another and they just simply sell it to the world and not face any kind of adverse consequences. Trade secrets are protected under every conceivable version and you couldn't do that under federal law if it turned out that the absolute position was correct. Uh, so it is just one of these breathtakingly blinding big errors and textualism, which ignores context, is as dangerous as contextualism that ignores text. All right. Thank you, Richard. And thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can follow Richard on Twitter. That's at Richard A. Epstein. You can read his weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can help us out by rating the show on iTunes. For Richard Epstein, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.